Hello, this is David Keel, and I'd like to welcome you to TNBS, the Thursday Night Bible Study. This study was held on February 3rd, 2011. Tonight we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So if you take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ephesians, we'll begin our study with the fourth chapter. So welcome again. This is TNBS, Volume 3, Session 3. Ephesians, fourth chapter, Paul's letter to Ephesians. It was written around, written around 61 A.D. when Paul doing Paul's imprisonment in Rome, his first imprisonment. Uh, this was when he was under house arrest rather than being in an actual cell or dungeon, possibly even shackled to a Roman guard, but most likely just simply he was in the presence of a Roman guard. But he did have the freedom to have visitors, and he wrote four letters uh, during this time. He wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, or Philemon, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And I want to look at the fourth chapter tonight, because one of my favorite chapters of Ephesians, uh, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, but particularly of Ephesians, lots of good stuff's in there, and so I want to kind of pick it up there tonight. And of course, he starts off in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... And again, I'm telling you, this was during his first imprisonment in Rome. And if you remember from our study of Romans, how he got there. That's when he went to Jerusalem and, and uh, started teaching there and was causing the riot and had to plead for protection from the Roman government and was sent to, to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. So that's what he is now. So as I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, and he uses the word there, entreat, uh, which, which we studied last time, actually, when we were looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It's the Greek word parakaleo, or a paraclete, which God is referred to in Scripture as a paraclete. And it par- basically it means para to alongside of and to cleat to stand. So it's to stand alongside of. And what Paul is saying there, he says, I-, I entreat you or implore you or urge you or beg you or encourage you to do something. That's what the word is meaning there. It's the same word, as I said, as used over 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Also, the word used in Romans 12, run. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God. It's that same Greek word there, to urge, to encourage, to entreat, to stand alongside of and push type thing. So this is what Paul is talking about here. It's a very strong Greek word, actually. He says, so therefore, I urge you, or I think my translation interprets the word entreat you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, this is the verse we've studied before, and we've talked about this, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let me back up, because there's, there's one other example of this word urge, which I, I wanted us to make a note of. You remember the story of Jairus' daughter? Look, look at Mark, Mark 5, 21. Let's flip back there. to give you This gives you another idea of exactly how strong a, a word this is. Fifth chapter of Mark, starting with the 21st verse. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered around him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials, named Jairus, J-A-I-R-U-S, came up and upon seeing him, fell at his feet and entreated him. That's that same Greek word. Entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her, that she may get well and live. And if you remember the story, Christ did go with him. And, and while he's going to Jairus' house is when we have the woman who has the issue of blood comes up and touches his cloak. 
but it's that same word. When, so, so if you can imagine a, a distraught father seeking help for his daughter, it's that kind of entreatment, that kind of urging. So that's kind of what that Greek word means there. So that's how strong that Greek word. So Paul is, is, is putting a lot of emphasis on wanting us to do something here. What is he urging us to do? He's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And to walk, and as you know, when Paul uses that word walk, he's always he's talking about living, how we live our life. We deliver our life in a manner that's worthy. And the Greek word there, uh, worthy is proper. It's actually axios, A-X-I-O-S, which means, it refers to a balance, like a scale. We should live our lives in such that our actions kind of balance our calling. Uh, our lives reflect the calling that we have had in Christ Jesus. So when we come to Christ through salvation and accept forgiveness and be declared righteous and, and receive His grace and mercy, He says, so therefore, the way we behave ought to balance that. It ought to be in balance with that. It ought to properly reflect that. Our lives should be worthy of what we have experienced through Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's the kind of the idea He's talking about. Our lives should reflect the fact that we have accepted the forgiveness and salvation and that we, that we have through Jesus Christ. So now how can we do this? Well, he's going to tell us that in verse 2. And he starts off by telling us four things in verse 2. First of all, he says, with all humility. With all humility. That's the first verse he talks about there. So we are to serve one another. We are to, to not put ourselves above somebody else. And if you remember going back looking at Romans, remember that theme that kept popping up in Romans where he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. And he cautioned the Jews about having a pious attitude toward the Gentiles. And he cautioned the Gentiles about having a pious attitude toward the Jews, how everyone was equal. And so it's the same, the same type of thing, this humility here. Have the attitude of, that, that Christ had. If you remember in, in John 13... But just before the Last Supper, when the disciples gathered in the upper room, what was the first thing Christ did? Do you remember? He washed, he washed their feet. He washed their feet, which was the job of the lowliest ranking servant in the household. That was the bottom. And if you stop and think about it, and particularly in those days when, when you had the fact that you just had barely sandals, if nothing, that's about all you had covering the feet. And when you consider the sanitation in the streets and the studs that they were walking through, to do something like that, it would be pretty gross. It really would. But Christ humbled himself to the point of doing a very lowly act. And I just had a thought earlier when I was thinking about this. Not only was it a lowly act of washing the disciples' feet, but think of the feet he was washing. I mean, he washed Judas's feet knowing that Judas was going to betray him. He washed Peter's feet, knowing that Peter was going to deny him. He washed all the other disciples' feet, knowing that all of them probably, except for possibly John, were going to desert him. There's some references to where we think John might have kind of hung back and at least stayed around. But there's no other reference to any other disciple doing a crucifixion other than Peter and John. And they all left him. But yet he still washed their feet. It's that type of humbleness. The attitude of not considering yourself above someone else. So that's the first way, Paul says, we can keep our balance, our actions balanced with our, with our commitment to Christ. The way we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He says it's through a humble attitude. Second of all, we're to be gentle or meek. And the Greek word there is pretus. 
If humbleness is the attitude, then gentleness is the action. Humbleness is kind of a, a mindset, and gentleness is kind of the action that, that comes out of that mindset, this praetis. We're not to grab for position or importance or assert our authority. We're to be humble. We're to be gentle. We're to be meek in, in our actions toward particularly fellow believers who, who he's referring to here. It's an attitude of the Spirit where we can accept God's dealings with us. We aren't resistant to God dealing with us. It's a meekness, a gentleness. Aristotle said that Pratis was kind of in the middle ground between getting angry without reason and not getting angry at all. It's the middle ground between getting angry without reason and not getting angry at all. That's what Pratis was. He said basically Pratis is getting angry at the right time in the right measure and for the right reason. Take an action that's proper in the time and the reason for it. And it's kind of hard to put in the modern English because we, we associate meekness with weakness, you know, in modern English, and, or, or humbleness or gentleness with weakness. And that wasn't really what the word meant back in, in, in Paul's day. Praetis is kind of a condition of the heart and mind which demonstrates gentleness, not in weakness, but out of power. It's kind of like a choice that the person has made. Now, the person is, is gentle and meek not because they cannot be any other way. They don't have the power or the ability to be forceful or, or bold. It's just they choose not to be. That's kind of the, 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 the attitude that he's talking about here with this Greek word of meekness. So, in order for us to, work, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of our relationship with Jesus Christ, for our lives to balance that calling or, or that decision, we're to be humble, we're to be gentle, and he goes on, we're to be patient. And here is that great Greek word which we've talked about many times before, macrothemia, as opposed to hupomone. Remember, hupomone is, is patience and forbearance under situations and things. Macrothemia is patience with people. And here he's talking about people. It's a self-restraint. Macrothemia kind of carries the attitude that someone has the ability and the power to avenge themselves, but they choose not to. You have the power and the ability to get even, but you choose not to. You have a patience with people. You have a patience with them rather than desiring to get even with them or to get back at them or to fight back at them or to strike back at them. Although you certainly have the ability and the wherewithal to do so, you choose not to. Macrothemia. You have a patience with them. It's restraining ourselves. See how all, all three of these are kind of all tied together with the humbleness and gentleness and patience. And then the last one is forbearance or tolerance. Is it anexio, A-A-N-E-X-O is the Greek word. It basically means to hold back, to restrain. You know, as Paul is saying we should make allowances for, the, for each other's faults. And this is done in love. Yes, agape. Uh, selfish, perfect love. When you look at humbleness and gentleness and patience and forbearance and the way all these Greek words are very closely related in, in the action, and particularly that last one when it says make an allowance for other people's faults, not trying to get even. You may want to get even or, or strike back when somebody mistreats you, but not, not doing so, having the patience, the restraint, to hold back. These, these are not easy things to do. It's like every one of these kind of goes against our human nature. But these are things which Paul says, this, these are the type of attitudes and actions we need to have in our life. If we're going to walk, if we're going to live, if we're going to behave in a manner that is worthy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is worthy of the fact that we are 
justified by the blood of Christ, that we are forgiven sinners. To live that kind of life, we need to demonstrate these types of attitudes and actions. Humbleness and meekness and gentleness and forbearance and patience and tolerance, those should be our actions, as opposed to putting people down, of striking back, of desiring to get even, graping and clawing to climb above everybody else, you know, uh, of considering yourself better than everybody else. The, that's kind of the counteractions there, which the counteractions seem much more human <laughs> than what Paul is urging us to do here. But if we do these things, then we will truly live our lives in a manner worthy of the, of the grace and forgiveness that we have received through Jesus Christ. Now, picking up in the third verse of this fourth chapter, Paul is getting back into one of his great themes, which I think, I'm trying to remember, it almost like this theme almost appears in every letter he writes. It was a heavy theme in, in Romans. Uh, it's a theme here in Ephesians. I think it's also in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in Timothy. It's one of the things he encourages Timothy to encourage the people of the church to do, and that is to live in unity. Remember, he talked about a lot about that in Romans, of unity, of one body, he says that in Corinthians, if you remember about them, when he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to where there's one body, it's one body of believers, with Christ as the head. He says in verse 3 of the fourth chapter, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're to live with, with humbleness and gentleness and patience and forbearance, and we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Diligent, spudezo, eager, earnest. In fact, that same Greek word is translated over in, second, in two verses in Second Timothy and one verse in, in Titus is being, is translated as saying, making every effort. So being diligent to make every effort, to, to make a effort, you know, not just to sit back, but to work at this, he's saying. We should have these attitudes that, that he's mentioned in the, first, in the second verse there. He says, and all of these things, and then we should work at, make every effort to preserve. And it, the Greek word there for preserve comes from a, a root word, which actually meant guard or warden. So basically what he said, if you want to try to amplify this verse in the Greek language, you could say that we're to make every effort to guard the unity of the Spirit. By the bond, Greek word for tendon or ligament, okay, the things that holds things together. Interesting enough, it can also mean, describe someone who is enslaved by habit or attitude, that Greek word for bond. Enslaved by habit or attitude, okay, so again, expanding this verse further, looking at the Greek definitions. We are to make every effort to guard the oneness of the Spirit by being enslaved by an attitude of peace. That's what he's saying. Peace functions as the bonding twine, the tendon that holds everything together. And this peace can only come from the Holy Spirit. This unity can only come from us all striving to please and to live for the Holy Spirit, not for ourselves. It's trying to seek peace, first of all, rather than trying to seek revenge. <laughs> Our first response should be one of trying to find a way to make peace, not trying a way to stir the pot when it comes to our fellow believers. And we do this through this gentleness and humbleness and patience and forbearance. And Paul said, this is going to take effort, guys. You've got, you got to be diligent at this. You've got to make every effort 
to guard this oneness because this oneness can be so easily broken. And in the early church, it was easily broken in many, many different ways. We looked at several of them already in Romans when you had superior attitude that the Jews kept taking. Well, we're the chosen people, and we have the law, and we have the prophets, and you know we've had God with on our sides, and we're better than the Gentiles. And then you got the Gentiles on the other side of saying, "All oh, you crazy Jews, y'all keep trying to follow, follow all these rules and regulations, and that ain't where it's at. It's just accepting God's grace, you know? And so y'all are way off track. We're much better than you are. And, and, and then you had such, such things as the false teachers that kept popping up, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians and again over in Titus and in Timothy where he warns them about the false teachers that come along. Uh, the preachers who were in it for the money, not trying to preach the truth. And, and this, the schisms that kept, called, that kept happening in all these churches. And that's one reason why Paul over and over and over and over again keeps talking about the unity of the Spirit. And how we need to work at guarding, persevering, preserving in the unity of the Spirit. Out of love. Because it's so important to keep that unity. Rather than trying to split up into various functions and functions and fractions. And factions. And cults. And whatever else that happens. And so that's one, I think that's why he keeps emphasizing this fact over and over. So, so we need to work at this. Uh, to be diligent to preserve the peace, the unity of the Spirit. So, and this begins when each of us walk in a manner worthy of our salvation, living with humbleness, gentleness, patience, and tolerance. So you see how all this is coming, how all this is tying together. This ability to live in peace comes with these attitudes which he's talked about in verse 2. That's how we can unify and, and maintain this unity of the Holy Spirit, by having these attitudes. Now, Paul is then going to use the Trinity to express the reasons for this unity. And... I've heard several times people ask about, well, you know, the Trinity is never preached in the Bible. It's never taught in the Bible. Well, yes, it is. You have to look for it. Nowhere does it call it the Trinity. Nowhere does the word Trinity appear, but it is taught in the Scripture. And it's done so here in the fourth chapter of Ephesians with verses 4, 5, and 6. Because in verse 4, he talks about the Spirit. In verse 5, he talks about the Lord or Christ. And in verse 6, he talks about God. So there's your Trinity right there. Okay? Draws off in verse 4. And also notice how many times the word one appears in these three verses. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. Over and over and over again. Oneness, as you can see, is a central theme here. That's what he's talking about, the oneness that we have. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There is only one body and only one spirit. We all have the same spirit, and we're all in the same body. Regardless of our differences, differences in race, gender, social status, background, whatever else you want to call it, there is one body, and we all belong to the same body. Remember, in the, in the pagan worship, there were there were multiple cults that they could belong to. You know, they could be a, a Athenius and Eros and all the different temples they could go to and, and, and be members of different cults. But not so in the Christian, in the Christian walk. In the Christian walk, there is only one body, one universal body of believers, with Christ as the head of that body. And if you remember over and over again, Paul uses that example of the human body when he talks about in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And over in Romans, when he talks about in Romans 8, 
3, uh, excuse me, 12, 3, when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit again, he says, the human body is made up of, of, of a lot of different parts. And each of these parts have a different function. You know, we don't have two identical thumbs. We have opposing thumbs. You know, we only have one right kneecap. And we have a left kneecap. But they form different functions. You know, similar but different. Uh, and, and he says, in order for the body to function as it is designed to function, and to function most efficiently, and to accomplish what it is designed to accomplish, all these different body parts have to, first of all, perform their duties. They have to do what they're designed to do, and they have to do it as best they can. Second of all, they have to do what they're designed to do in conjunction with all the other parts, working together with the other parts for a common goal or toward a common goal, which is what the head is directing the body to do. And, of course, the head is Christ. So this, this physical example he's using of the human body is a perfect illustration of what he's trying to point, he's trying to get across about the, the body of spiritual believers, of being one body. All kind of different believers. Uh, in, in his day, it was primarily Jews and Gentiles were the main separations. But you had also slave and free. You had male and female. You had Jew and Greek. You had heathen. You had all these different types. But in the body, there was all one body. And in that body, they were all of importance. Equal importance in God's eyes. But it was all one body and one spirit. All the same spirit. And he goes on in verse 5, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is only one Lord which we all accept through one faith, which results in one baptism. We all come to Christ the same way. By professing of our belief in His death, burial, and resurrection as a sacrifice for our sins. There is that one faith that we have in the one Lord. Not multiple lords, not multiple gods. Not multiple ways. There is only one way. I am the truth, the life, and the truth, and the way. One way. So there's only one Lord. And we come to Him all by expressing the same faith. And then we all go through one baptism. Now, different forms of baptism, that is true, whether you're sprinkling or whether you're dunked, whether you're splashed, you know. I guess you could be splashed. I don't know how many different ways there are to be baptized. But, but it's all the one baptism in Christ. Okay, that's what he's talking about here when he says one baptism. It's all the same. We are all sinners who have come to the same salvation through the same faith in the same Lord. Because in verse 6, Paul says, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay? So we have one body and one spirit, all the same. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one salvation through the one Lord, and we have the one God who has created all things. Well, the pagans did not. They worshipped many gods, remember. We have just one, and it's the same one as you have, and I have, the same God. He is the one who created. He is the Father of all things because He created all the things. He is in all of us in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and He is the one who works through all of us for accomplishing the same purpose. Now, with each individual life, that may be different, but it's all under the direction of the one Spirit, which is the one Lord, which is the one God. 
Okay? That's what he's talking about here. Now, don't carry this over into pantheism when he says in all and through all. He's not talking about you know God being in the trees and the, the rocks and the grass and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he's talking about his spirit being in, indwelling presence in us. And so it is the same for us all. We receive the same spirit by faith in the same Lord and receive the same forgiveness, love, and mercy from the same God. I was teaching this similar passage at one time and somebody says, well, you know, it's like I heard somebody say one time, how did they put it? Christian is the noun and everything else are just adjectives. I think it's with the similar type of point they were trying to make. No, I, oh, I'm, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. They were referring to a verse which we're fixing to get to because I think um, when, when he, Paul keeps talking about this unity and this sameness and this oneness so much here, look over in Galatians, in the third chapter of Galatians. Look over, look back, I should say, because Galatians comes before Ephesians. Galatians 3, 28. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So just as there is only one Spirit, one body, one Lord, one God that we worship, and that we all get our salvation through the same one God's mercy, through the one Christ sacrifice, we are looked at by this God also is all being one, equal, regardless of Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. We're all one. We are all one in the one body ourselves, and God looks at us all the same way. The one God looks at all of us the same way as well. Because of this, because of this unity which we share, and because of this unity which God sees us as, then we should live in a manner of preserving this unity rather than trying to destroy this unity. And we should preserve that unity. How? By being humble, by being gentle, by being patient, by having forbearance with our fellow believers. By living in a manner that is worthy of our faith and salvation and righteousness in Christ Jesus. That's in balance. So what we do balances with what we claim. Our actions reflect and display and show the world who we are and whose we are and what we are. Or at least Paul says that's the way our lives should be. And having that kind of attitude and living that kind of life will preserve the unity of the Spirit. None of us have any right to look down upon anybody else or to think ourselves better than anybody else. If they're professing believers, blood-bought sinners in Christ, then they're the same as we are. No better, no worse. That's what Paul is talking about here. And the importance of the unity, because as we all know, without that, you know, churches can literally fly apart and have. And not only churches, but Fellowships, just friendships, just you know, everything. If our focus gets off of Christ and starts getting on people and personalities, there should be that oneness that binds us all together in a bond of love. Pray with me. Father, it's, this sounds so good. 
and it would be ideal. But Lord, I know me, and I don't live up to the standard. I pray, Father, that, that you would help me to be better about this, to have a greater attitude of humbleness and gentleness and forbearance and patience. I get so easily upset with the people at times. And, and yes, Father, can even become prideful at times. And there's no basis for it. So forgive me, Father, when I stray from the ideal and start looking at myself rather than you. And help us all, Father, to keep on the right path and with the right attitudes. And may our lives truly, truly reflect who we are in you. So I thank you, Father, for your forgiveness when I become selfish and self-centered. Thank you, Father, for the joy and the peace that I can experience when my focus is on you. Be with us in this week, Lord. May we truly walk, truly walk in a manner that's worthy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this is my prayer in and through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, my Savior and my Lord, and my very bestest friend. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us tonight. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future study, please send me an email. My address is davidlkeel at gmail.com. So until next time, I pray that we will indeed, in every phase of our life, walk and live in a manner that is worthy of our calling. May God bless you.